Hello and welcome to IFG Live, the Institute for Government's new way of staging public events during lockdown and of continuing to hold the kind of informed discussions and conversations that in normal times take place in our building in Westminster. My name is Akash Pown. I'm a senior fellow of the Institute. I lead our work on devolution. And the subject of today's conversation is English devolution and the impact of coronavirus. We're holding this discussion this week in particular because on Thursday, the 7th of May, elections should have been taking place in London to elect the mayor and assembly and for the new posts of Metro Mayor in Greater Manchester, West Midlands, Liverpool City Region and Tees Valley, which were first created just three years ago, um, as well as for police and crime commissioners and other local elections across England and Wales. But like so many things, these elections have been postponed. And coronavirus also, entirely understandably, appears to have put on hold the plans for a government white paper spelling out exactly how ministers plan to meet their manifesto commitment to deliver, and I quote, full devolution across England so that every part of our country has the power to shape its own destiny. That, at least, is the ambition. And so, in this strange context, I'm very pleased to be chairing this discussion of how far the devolution process has come so far over recent years, what difference it has made, and where it might go next. I have a long list of questions for the panel, probably too long. Um, And thank you. We've also received questions submitted via email and Twitter from a number of people, and I will try to weave those in to the discussion at appropriate moments. We have a great panel um, that should be very well placed to shed light on all these matters, and I will introduce them now. First of all, I'm very pleased to welcome Julia Goldsworthy, who's a former MP and a former Special Advisor in the Treasury, and Julia is now Director of Strategy for the West Midlands Combined Authority, working with Conservative Metro Mayor Andy Street. Julia, hello. Hi, hi. How are you doing, Akash? Hi. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, second, we have Alan Harding, who's a professor at the Alliance Manchester Business School, and also chief economic advisor to the other Andy, Andy Burnham, Mayor of Greater Manchester. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Akash. Good to join you. Thanks. And finally, delighted also to be joined by Dr. Nicola Hedlam, uh, formerly of Oxford and Liverpool Universities, and also, very interestingly, a former head of Northern Powerhouse Policy in the Cities and Local Growth Unit in Whitehall, where she worked closely with uh, former Northern Powerhouse Minister Jake Berry until last autumn. Nicola, thank you for being with us too. No worries. Looking forward to the discussion. Great. So let's get started. Um, So aside from this being three years since the the metro mayors were first elected in various city regions across England, this is also the five-year anniversary since the Conservative Party uh, won a majority in the 2015 general election. Shortly after that, George Osborne, then Chancellor, of course, announced what he promised would be a devolution revolution for England. 
So, Julia, um, well, first of all, my apologies for reminding you about the 2015 election. Um, but my <laughs> question to you is, looking back, has there been a devolution revolution since then? Well, it's quite interesting. You know, we're at the point where in normal circumstances, we'd be expecting um, a mayoral election to be happening this week, um, which does you know, make you reflect back on the progress that's been made since the first mayoral election three years ago. And certainly my take is an awful lot has happened in that time. You know, since the kind of leaders and the local and the local enterprise partnerships kind of signed up to the original declaration of intent in the West Midlands, um, a huge amount has ha- happened. You know, there was agreement then that there were big problems that could only be tackled by partners across the region working together to unlock them. And since then since the mayoral election, we've seen two devolution deals. We've seen um, a skills deal. We've seen housing um, secured. So there's been an awful lot of activity. Um, some of it's felt quite frantic. It's felt a bit like um, trying to fly a plane at the same time as building it. Um, it was a time scale that was shortened by the fact that the initial mayoral term was supposed to be three years. So kind of certainly felt like there was a lot of ground to be covered in a short space of time. But it does feel that an awful lot of, of progress has been made. Um, you know, still plenty of still plenty more to do, but um, very very different ways of working. Significant resources transferred into the region. You know, all of the things just following through on that initial commitment from leaders in the West Midlands and the local enterprise partnerships to work together to tackle some of the big challenges that the region face that would, that could be better tackled by working together. Okay, well, uh, we'll come on to some of the the very specific um, developments that um, have taken place in the West Midlands in a moment, I hope. But um, I first now want to turn to Alan. Um, I mean, what what, what do you think, Alan, on that same question? Has this been a revolution? Um, It's a big word. Was that just a political hyperbole or do you share, um, share Julia's analysis more or less? I think it's fair to say that events, dear boy, um, kind of got in the way of the of the devolution momentum a little bit. So I would agree entirely with Julia that if you look at the local level, if you look within Greater Manchester, there has been enormous progress in terms of, of, of bringing the devolution machinery together and making it work more effectively across a whole series of fronts. But I do think the energy went out of, of national government's view of devolution, um, unsurprisingly to some extent, given that um, Theresa May's government in particular was was um, was somewhat overtaken by um, Brexit issues, um, and Boris Johnson's government, um, despite a good start in terms of reassertion of the of the strong support for principle of devolution, of course has been overtaken by COVID. So. I think there, there, there are understandable reasons um, why the, the energy has gone out of the devolution movement in terms of, of, of an intergovernmental um, set of arrangements, um, but agree with Julia that there's enormous progress has been made. One of the things I, I do um, is, is have quite a lot of contact with international visitors uh, and trying to boil down the, the UK approach to devolution is a challenge that I face on a on a regular basis. I think I think we need to remember just how exceptional um, the 2015 period was in terms of making huge strides 
uh, in devolution a whole series of of, um, of of deals of one sort or another. Um, it's it would be good to think we can get back to something like that energy at some point. Although there's some question marks, I think, about whether bespoke deals negotiated painstakingly between bits of the locality and bits of central government is the best way of going about that. Yes, well, I mean, it's certainly the case that there's been there's been periods of of quite um, extensive activity, and and yes, yeah, certainly that moment uh, when George Osborne um, was very focused on it, put the institutional might of the Treasury um, behind the agenda to some extent. That did seem to be a period when uh, things were were moving, but then, as you say. Um, yes, Brexit was 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 perhaps the big event um, that that hit um, quite quickly, and of course, more recently, we've we've been swallowed up by the coronavirus crisis. So, um, Nicola, coming to you, um, I mean, Alan's made the point that um, yes, from from his perspective, um, the energy um, has 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 gone out of the agenda f- to some extent. Um, in national government. Um, you worked in Whitehall uh, from 2018 to 2019. Brexit was going on, but um, there was still a commitment to, to, to make progress with devolution and the Northern Powerhouse and so on. So, I mean, what's your, what's your take on this? What, what was the government genuinely, genuinely committed at that uh, time to making progress here or um, was it a bit of lip service by that point? So, of course, the very clever thing that you're supposed to say about any revolution is that it's too early to say, right? So it might be that the 2015 devolution revolution uh, in another generation, we will be marking it as the beginning of something that happened. But Alan is certainly right that that's certainly been quite punctuated by other events. Um, the... Um, the Northern Powerhouse, which is obviously the territorial entity that I know the best, really has had an almost annual rebrand and reworking, and sometimes it's been a political and economic project, um, and sometimes it's been a, a, a brand. And essentially, that speaks to the broader point, which is in the absence of a constitutional settlement which features protection for subnational economic development. The institutions and organisations that we all work in and work so hard to make do sensible things are totally tethered, as Alan said, to the political realities of wider issues. And I think it would also, I mean, uh, despite uh, the, the the many uh, pieces of work and projects that have been taken forward brilliantly, I might say, in all areas, if we ignore that actually at the same time there's been a real consolidation of policy making into a smaller than ever uh, number of people. So it isn't even really that it makes sense to um, influence many government departments in terms of this agenda. It is really, it's very tightly controlled in the JEU between numbers 10 and 11. The sort of 15 people around Dominic Cummings, uh, 10 or 11 in the policy unit. And I mean, that's only about 30 or 40 people. And as far as I can see, that's consolidated a lot of policy making. So, so although we are all excited about subnational economic development and the potential for our areas, meanwhile, um, this sort of countervailing trend, I think, has been uh, in evidence. 
Yes, and I mean, so you're of course uh, not a uh, not a career civil servant, but um, for for that period of your career, you were working in the civil service. I mean, what was your um, impression of the Whitehall culture? Because you know there are stereotypes about the civil service being. Um, relatively unpersuaded by devolution and um, willing to um, drag its feet to prevent a genuine transfer of of power um, away from the centre. But um, are are those fair stereotypes? I mean, what was your impression of the system? So I would say that you get the good, the bad and the ugly of devolution within Whitehall based, so in my case, Marsham Street based civil servants. Some people are so passionate about what can be done to take power from the centre that they are real advocates, and some don't think about it, and some actively, you know, resist or reject. And there's no sort of rhyme or reason as to where those people are. So somebody that was really into devolution might pop up in DFT, for example, and be working on HS2 or the economic plans around HS2 and be absolutely brilliant. But until civil servants are instructed by their ministers, they can park something that isn't a sort of passion project like devolution. Obviously, it was for me. I went in to, um, to, to, to use my sort of understandings of what we should be doing subnationally there is as well as sort of just sort of passionate types there is a real genuine machinery of government issue around how to cope with both the cross-cutting issues but also kind of how regional growth or regional development where and where it all sits so one of the things that I just always reflect on at all times is that stripey is bad generally, stripey either, very unflattering if you have stripes up and down the piece. So like no no alignment between different levels of government and scales of government, but almost worse, very unflattering as well, are stripes across the piece. And it ends up in a sort of weird slicing and dicing of policy that's never quite fits right in terms of having a kind of subnational policy that can function. Right. And I think um, I'm, I'm sure I've seen you uh, quoted um, since you left uh, Whitehall, <laughs> when you can go on record again, um, as advocating a uh, machinery of government change to potentially create something like uh, a dedicated ministry for the North. Yeah, I just wonder if you'd like to spell out how you think uh, that might work and, and, and why it would be a, a step forward? To be honest, um, I'm not sure that a ministry is necessarily the right answer. It was what I said uh, when I spoke to the Sunday Times. But more than that, it is about having permanent institutions that aren't just, um, that can't just fall with the next breath of wind. So, I mean, to be honest, the, the asymmetries are so profound now. So as you mentioned, the London mayoral election this week, you know, London has got a relatively functional, built-out governance set, set, of, set of structures, you know. Um, and also I found myself watching the coronavirus briefings and seeing uh, Nicholas Sturgeon and feeling kind of increasingly kind of cross that for the five million people in Scotland, there are policy development choices made to be made at the Scottish level. And then for the 15 million in the north, there isn't anywhere to articulate a different set of preferences about coronavirus or anything else. 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there are institutional and constitutional fixes that we need to go for. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've, argued, I've argued the case for a Ministry of the North until I'm kind of blue in the face. Of course, we need a ministry for the Midlands Engine, for the Western Gateway, for Oxcam, for all the sort of subnational entities. That makes it you end up, um, rather than slimming down the cabinet table, but massively increasing it. But something like the suggestions in the 2070 Commission, where you've got sort of super regions that you work on, that would work. I'm not, you know, it doesn't need to be a ministry because it sounds good. It needs to be a ministry because it's powerful. Yeah. So, I mean, on this on this question of, um, of 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 structural change, I mean, Julie, I wanted to to turn to you on this as well. I mean, you did you did five years hard labour in the Treasury. Um, I just wonder if you have any reflections on um, Nicola's analysis and 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 had um, well, what was your what was your impression of uh, working for a, a government that again was um, was was certainly talking the language of, of decentralization and you of course were supporting uh, liberal Democrat ministers who were very much committed to that agenda um, I mean how, how difficult did you or how easy did you find it to to make progress in that regard um, it was quite interesting to hear what Nicola was saying about how centralized policy making has become in this current government and I I'd, I'd push back on that slightly I think I would say that if I, if you look back to the governments of the last ten years, um, they've all been quite centralised in terms of policy making. There might have been divisions that have varied between number ten and number eleven, and whether there were rival bases. Um, but actually, you know, the direction of travel, you know, that to that, it, it feels like you know the central government has tried to keep quite a firm grip on policy making, and that's something that's you know we've seen in successive governments. My reflection was just how much this agenda has been shaped by the personalities of individual ministers um, and to a certain extent the psychology of um, individual departments as much as kind of our government structures. So, you know, where all, where this whole agenda grew out of kind of George Osborne's view of the world and empowering Greg Clark as then um, kind of the the minister leading the charge on city deals, you know, it was very much, um, you know, Greg Clark world was letting a, th- a thousand flowers bloom. So, you know, not having um, a roadmap or a template that every region must follow, but kind of coming up with these individual conversations around what blend of powers and resources in individual places were asking for. And it felt that um, kind of as we saw the transition from the back end of the coalition government into the into 2015 in the Conservative majority government, you know that that theme continued of being very deals based and and transactional. And for me, you know where it's been challenging, it's almost been at the point at which it's been difficult to break out of that mould. I think it's not just kind of the lack of a power base or ministries, but actually just the rhythm of fiscal events makes it very very difficult to break out of that, and it makes it very very difficult for individual departments to think beyond the confines of kind of, you know, the resources that they want to control and the powers they want to exercise directly. So for me, it's not about, um, it's, it can't just be about how we ensure that our regions have a seat at the table where some of the big policy decisions get made. It's about how we change the decision-making structures that incentivize Whitehall to think beyond the parameters of their department to think in you know not just in 
from a place-based point of view, but to think in terms of other cross-cutting themes. And so I suppose where I would start would be to rethink how our how those fiscal incentives work to encourage um, departments and to encourage the Treasury to kind of break out of some of those silos? Well, um, I mean, we started off this conversation reflecting and recognising that despite the constraints and despite the disruption of of events over the past few years, um, there has been progress and there has been um, a a, a lot um, of, of activity in this space as well. So I do want to turn back to, I suppose, the more um, positive uh, take on some of this. Alan, I'd just just like to ask you, I mean, when you look back over the past um, three years, so since um, the mayor of Greater Manchester was, was first elected, I mean, what would you identify as perhaps the single biggest um, thing that you think has been achieved? What what has happened as a result of there being a, ma- a mayor and there being a, a, a combined authority? Yes, that, that did pre-exist the mayor slightly. But what has happened that without these reforms, you don't think would have happened or would not have would not have happened in the same way? Well, just to just to put my answer in context a little bit, Akash, you, you, you're quite right to suggest that the um, you know, city regional governance didn't start in Greater Manchester um, with the advent of, of the current directly elected mayor. It has has a very long history preceding that, and I don't think we'd have been able to achieve what we have achieved without that history of, of institutional development by a set of local authorities who agreed to work together when, if we're frank about it, there was no particular national government encouragement to do so. So um, it, all, it all builds on a lot of activity over over decades, actually, um, rather than starting even in 2011 with the, with the first skeletal um, Greater Manchester Combined Authority. But, but to go to your central point, I think if you pose that question to the mayor, he would say that you know what what's happened in, in GM is that a a relatively economically focused set of activities which dominated the agenda up until um, a couple of years before he he became mayor. Um, the change was when national government decided um, they were comfortable with delegating health and social care functions to some degree. In Greater Manchester, we'll probably come back to this when we discuss COVID. Um, but the, you know, his number one manifesto promise was that by the end of his first term in office, there would be no street sleepers in Greater Manchester, and we are the one area of the country who, largely because of his soft powers rather than any statutory powers that he, he holds, has managed to make a very, very significant dent in the number of rough sleepers. So you can see the numbers coming down very substantially in Greater Manchester in a way that they didn't in in other areas of the country. Now, it just so happens, of course, that his his target was met in in absolutely extraordinary circumstances um, when it it became absolutely necessary to ensure that street sleepers were were safe uh, and in a a suitable environment. So the the deal which Greater Manchester did with a number of city centre hotels to make sure, make sure that people who, who wish to um, were able to, to, to live safely through the COVID crisis um, has, has actually achieved that target. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the argument would be that there are, there are a number of powers that were given to Greater Manchester 
um, in advance of the mayor coming into into position, um, which has enabled us to to do a lot on the back of various deals. Um, but the you know the single the, the the single showstopper, if you like, is around street sleeping. Yes, I think there is something quite um, qu- quite um, interesting about um, the ability of of the metro mayors to use the the authority of having the the directly elected mandate and and, and as you say the soft power that comes with it to uh, bring people together and 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 um, join up between different authorities and, and public services. Um, so yeah, that's that's certainly a, a very interesting example of that. I mean, Julia, how about um, from from the West Midlands perspective? I mean, unlike Great Man- Greater Manchester, there, there wasn't the not to the same extent anyway the um, long-standing institutionalised cooperation between local authorities. Combined authority is newer, so so I guess the foundations on which you were building were kind of shallower but nonetheless um you know andy street has been a a big figure in national debate and he's had a high profile on certain issues so so what would you what would you identify or highlight as as kind of the big thing that you have been able to achieve that without the without the devolution deal and the mayor you think probably wouldn't have happened yeah so you're absolutely right we don't have the kind of historical you know we just don't have the history of the institutional cooperation so we've been trying to do in the last five years what um, Greater Manchester has probably spent the last 20 at least 20 um, building on and in a very finely balanced political environment as well Um, so I would say you know the absolute cornerstone to landing the original devolution deal was that shared sense as I said earlier that there was a kind of shared economic mission um, in terms of ensuring that we unlocked growth for the region and that that would be growth that everybody would be able to benefit and access. And that really has been kind of at the centre of a lot of the activity of the combined authority. Um, it's what, what's kind of kept all the partners together and focused. And so, you know, what felt like a major step forward in that was the work we did to put together a local industrial strategy. So the further evolution of that strategic economic plan for the region that kind of spelled out in more detail where we thought our strengths were, what the new opportunities would be, where we could play into global mega trends um, and how we could do that in a way that would kind of, you know, would be focused on on ensuring that everybody benefited from that from that growth and that we did it in a way that was kind of focused on on green growth and clean growth as well um and although you know events have certainly moved on quite quite a lot since since that document was published i think what that does do is give us a really really good basis for thinking about you know how we tackle and respond to what is going to be a significant economic shock for the whole globe and to just to kind of use that evidence base and that thinking to to really make sure that we we kind of bounce forward as a region once some of these restrictions are lifted so i'd say you know that's where we've really cemented those relationships and there are you know so many strands to all of that whether it's on you know um the the plans to unlock more homes in the region, um, to, not just to support growth, to thinking about how we can, you know, tackle youth unemployment, how we can improve our transport infrastructure to unlock growth. So there's been a whole series of strands that have progressed, but it's all kind of focused on kind of really thinking about what our future economic traje- trajectory can look like and how we make sure that everybody in the region gets to benefit and participate in that. 
Yeah, sure. So yeah, it's a combination of, of certain immediate pressures you have to deal with, as you say, in terms of transport system and but also um trying to think ahead to yeah, when 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 things ultimately return to something more like normal. Um very interesting. Alan, um I mean how does that compare like to, to, to the situation in Greater Manchester? Because as I think you briefly briefly mentioned the Greater Manchester devolution deal and the Metro Mayor, Andy Burnham, um, is a bit more broader in scope in that Andy Burnham is also the Police and Crime Commissioner for Greater Manchester. And there is the certain extent of devolution of um, control of, of the local NHS and, and social care integration strategy and so on. So uh, given given those additional functions... Um, being devolved. What, what has that all meant then in, in the context of, of coronavirus? I mean, has this completely transformed the, the work of the combined authority? Well, the, the coronavirus threat um, has, has certainly transformed the work of, of people I come into contact with in Greater Manchester. It's, it's, it's now the number one priority for all of us, of course. And just like everybody else, we're thinking in terms of, of the adequacy of, of our immediate response um, and then thinking longer term to, to what the process of recovery looks like, which I think is in two phases. One is that we're going to go through a, a period in which some form of social distancing is, is going to continue to apply. And that, that puts pressure on, as Julie was saying, it puts pressure on transport services, um, we have a major international airport in our patch, uh, for example, which is running at 1% capacity at the moment. So there, there are lots of those longer-term challenges. I think in terms of the, the, the advantages of having a, a devolved model, the health and social care element of it has been extremely useful to GM in the sense that there was, there, there was no question whatsoever that the, this would be a city-regional response um, drawing on the, the whole of the extended family of organisations that are linked to Greater Manchester strategy from the very start. The, a, 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 a simple example that we have in Greater Manchester is our, our better ability to source PPE through the current crisis. And that's a function of two things. One, that we have a joined up system of, of health and social care provision. And the second is that we, we have a dedicated team of international trade and inward investment specialists who together are able to source um, items of PPE and to reduce some of the pressure um, that everybody has faced in terms of getting those to the front line. And that's just a, a, a one example of the way we've managed to work together. To what extent is the mayor or are the mayors collectively, there, there are eight metro mayors now across England plus plus London as well, um, are, are, to what extent are they um, able to influence decision-making? Andy Burnham has been on record, I think, questioning why um, he is not able to take part in the emergency response uh, COBRA meetings, whereas the mayor of London and... Um, indeed, the, the devolved leaders from Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland are. Um, so, I mean, it, d- does that lead you to feel you are being shut out of the of the debate, or, or do you feel you are still able to to influence thinking? I, th- I think it's it's a mixed picture. So, on on the one hand, sim- simply because of the of the profile of 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 our particular mayor um, and and his political profile in the past. I think 
to some extent, he has been able to use the platform of being mayor of Greater Manchester to influence national debate. Um, he was the first to call for lockdown, I believe, um, and he's 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 pointed out an, a number of shortcomings with government schemes which have led to improvements. Um, so the, the the position is not without influence. However, it is it is absolutely right that you know. The, he has made calls to be represented at the top table, as it were. Um, I think one other element of all of this is the extent to which the, the process of the very centralised process, and it has been a centralised response, is, is different to, to some of our major um, competitors um, overseas. If you look at the German response, for example, I think you'll see a very big difference between the way in which the the regions have been able to respond within a nationally coordinated process, probably to better effect than, than the UK has managed. The reason for that is because they have a different constitutional structure and they include localities and, and the lender in national debates about how to, how to deal with national crises. We are some way short of that, we have to, have to say, um, and actually thinking about the implications of that for the future I think is going to be a big item for discussion going forward. Yes, and that's quite a nice um, link to a, a couple of questions I wanted to bring in from uh, from, from people um, who, who've submitted them in advance um, about how this um, crisis um, might affect attitudes to um, to devolution going forward. So there's two sort of related questions that I'll I'll I'll, I'll give you both. I'll give you them both at the same time, and then be interested in thoughts. So, um, I mean, first of all, uh, Jill Rutter, uh, formerly of the Institute for Government, now UK in a changing Europe, um, she asks whether the panel thinks that the roles that uh, the mayors have played so far on during the, the COVID crisis um, have helped to persuade uh, mayoral sceptics, and then. Somewhat relatedly, there's a question from uh, Nick King, who, Julia, I suspect you know, a former special advisor who's now at the Centre for Policy Studies. And his question, which I think is an interesting one, is, well, he notes that certain figures in government will no doubt have been frustrated over the last few weeks, realising they don't have all the levers they might want to deal with the COVID-19 crisis. So do you think their experience is likely to engender a determination to bring power closer to the centre with command and control becoming more commonplace? And if so, well, what does that mean for devolution? Julia, did did you want to come in on that? I think it's going to be on that last point. I think we're going to see different tensions at play. So I'm sure that there will be kind of pull factors for departments and with individual ministers to feel like they need to get a much, much tighter grip. Um, But then equally, I think if you look at the government's response to this crisis, it's definitely exposed some of the capacity and capability challenges, I think, in central government to be able to kind of directly micromanage all of the, you know, to, to be able to control everything. I think, you know, the whole situation around PPE is a, is a classic one um, where, you know, there was an attempt to kind of get a very firm, single-handed central grip on on the supplies and it just wasn't able to respond to the demand in the system quickly enough. So I think, you know, what we're going to see over the next few weeks and months is, is almost that 
that discussion happen in real time. And I think that's where it's really, really important that our mayors and our combined authorities are kind of speaking with one voice on just being very clear about where we do, where, you know, where we will be able to help unlock additional capacity and, and kind of support and help government in tackle these completely new challenges where we're all just trying to work out how we plot a path through them. So I do think... Yeah. I don't think there's going to be a very simple answer to that. I think we're going to see these arguments playing out over the, the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, sure. And I mean, Alan, is, is, is there something of a concern, do you think, in, uh, in Greater Manchester that um, the crisis might lead to an attempt by the centre to, to reassert control, shall we say? Or, is that, or do you see it going in a different direction? I would hope it would go in a different direction. So, you know, in answer to the first question, have, have, have mayors in, in improved their credibility through their handling of this crisis? I would certainly hope that the public perception is that that is indeed the case, um, certainly in my patch. On the, on the centralisation thing, I mean... The, unfortunately, what one, one of the sort of um, one of the side effects of, of of trying to deal with this crisis that has come to light as a result is 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 the degree of damage which has been done to local government over the last decade, um, and in a period in which we've you know we've we've denuded local authorities of, of resources and really left them in in a very weak position, um, particularly in, in terms of support for adult social care. And I think we can see the ramifications of that feeding through the system with with quite tragic consequences. So the the answer to that is not a centralised policy. The answer to it is is rebuilding the capacity of localities to be able to handle crises. I I hope, for goodness, that we never get a repeat of of this particular one. Um, But the the resilience of of the local government structure um, to challenges like this um, and, you know, the, the, we will face issues in the future around a whole set of environmental issues, for example, which are, are likely to be pretty challenging. It seems to me that the route, the route through that is not centralisation. It is rebuilding capacity at the local and, the, in our case, the city regional level to be able to, move, to be more resolute um, in the future. For me, what's intriguing is that we're talking, so I do most of my work at the at the pan-regional level, so the three, um, what were the three RDAs of the North, but are now the 11 LEPs of the North. Um, Alan's talking about city-regional level, and then also in terms of getting somewhere near to citizens, as Julia was saying, and talking about neighbourhoods. Now, in terms of, you know, central local relations, these are very different scales of operation. And what I think is fascinating is that as the um, supranational Brexit stuff kind of washed through, in some ways it washed away quite a lot of the central local contract as it existed. And now we're left with these different scales to operate at. So for me, I think it would be good to have frameworks, economic frameworks, spatial frameworks maybe, at the region, regional level, as I say in the 27th Commission. Most of service provision could be taken care of and strategic direction set at the city regional level, but then another layer of devolution to neighbourhoods within city regions. And that is not what the map looks like. It's not what the map representation looks like, and it's not what the map in terms of how we understand our ability to run a public service looks like. So in some ways... Um, this couldn't be more exciting because let's try to remake the world in a way that actually fits some of these realities. This could be a time to 
maybe have that stuff come to the fore? Yeah, so I think um, that's a that's a good moment actually to to, to to move forward, if we may, in the interest of time, to um, some specific questions that we've had from uh, from people about precisely what uh, what should change or, or what the government um, how the government should take forward this agenda. First of all, um, there's a question from uh, David Walker, uh, former managing director of the Audit Commission. And he asks whether the panel agrees that subnational government in England cannot prosper unless and until councils, mayors, etc., acquire financial autonomy through local taxation and/or a guaranteed share of national revenues. And until then, he suggests it's kicking the can down the road, regardless of their crisis performance. Um, what do the panel think about that proposition? That's absolutely right. I suppose it's the, you know, there are some key foundations, aren't there, to ensuring that we've got um, kind of capacity in our places to ensure that we can respond in the best way. I think Alan's already talked about the fact that, you know, um, local authorities need to absolutely be at the centre of that too. But it goes back to Nicola's point around what we need is actually some kind of framework for how all of this fits together and where it's going to end up. And part of that discussion absolutely has to be around what powers and resources those institutions need to be able to fulfil their responsibilities. Um, So I think it absolutely has to be a part of it. You know, the future discussions about devolution can't just be about structures. They absolutely have to be about the resources as well. And until both local government and this kind of regional level have have a kind of clear sense of what the, their financial footings are going to be. It's going to be very, very difficult to, to, to move forward. I was just going to say one further thing which fits in with this around um, kind of making sure that we don't um, that we, we, we learn the lessons of 2008, the last big economic shock as well, and th- kind of translate them to our current set of circumstances. So, you know, it, when you think about the institutional capacity in the regions, um, it might not have been in the same structures that we have now, but there was significant resource in the region and significant flexibility to ensure that support could be directed to, you know, in a with, with with a degree of discretion to where kind of need was most obvious in a place. And that, that was kind of delivered through the regional development agencies at that point. But, um, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, we haven't just lost those institutions, we've lost a huge amount of capacity and resource. So if government are going to think about how we respond effectively, they absolutely need to be thinking about what the framework looks like and what resources those key institutions are going to be able to deploy. Right. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned the regional development agencies. We've had a question as well from um, Jim Hancock, uh, who was previously political editor for BBC Northwest. Um, and he asks the question um, of whether the panel agrees that the current pattern of devolution, particularly in the north, um, is incoherent with the combination of combined authorities, elected mayors, LEPs, local councils, the Northern Powerhouse, does all that make for inefficiency and confusion? Um, and then specifically, he goes on to ask, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, whether an alternative model might be to set up government offices in each region with regional development agencies held to account by elected assemblies. This was, of course, um, the Labour Party's regional government uh, vision, which was 
um, well, th- th- somewhat ran into the sand itself and then was entirely swept away after 2010. So, um, Alan, you've been, uh, <laughs> uh, don't take it the wrong way, but I know you've been watching regional policy debates for some years. Um, what, what do you think? Was it was it a mistake to get rid of all that or is what the government's been doing since 2010 20, and 2015 an improvement on the old the old approach? Well, as somebody who com- campaigned long and hard, Akash, for um, a, a city regional approach rather than a regional approach to some of the key issues that the UK faced, um, you won't be surprised to learn that I, I, I don't think the regional approach was, was particularly effective. Um, what it did have, however, um, compared to some of the institutions which we've set up in the last decade, is a level of resource which allowed them to make a significant amount of difference. Um, I think it would have been better channeled through city regions um, and and other areas um, which make a certain amount of economic and cultural sense to people. Um, a sense of belonging uh, is particularly important in all of this. In the, the bigger picture for me, and, and it goes back to the previous question to some extent, is you know we we get we get terribly het up at times about the idea of things being messy. Um, I don't think messiness is necessarily um, the the enemy of innovation and progress. I think if you look at if you look at what's happened in the UK and and what's happened in other comparable con- countries, um, asymmetrical devolution, um, as as some have termed it, is not something which cannot work. You find it in Spain, you find it in France, you find it in quite a lot of our competitor nations, and we've done the same thing ourselves. If you think about it, what we don't have in England is anything like the settlement which is guaranteed through the Barnett formula for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So if we are thinking about fiscal reform, we've got to get over the idea that, you know, um, simply through returning a a broader array of of powers to localities to to, um, raise their own resources, which would, uh, I must underline, be be welcome um, to some degree. The more successful countries which have, have, have lesser differences between the regions have some way also of redistributing resources between richer and poorer parts of their, of their national territories. We do that for Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. We do not do it for any areas of England. Um, so the, the, the effect of siloed policies is to reward areas which are doing well over those which are doing less well, it seems to me. And until we grapple with that, then devolution in England uh, is not going to gather the momentum and the energy it needs. Yes. Well, the Barnett formula, yeah. I mean, I've heard Andy Burnham uh, make the case for um, some similar approach to be taken to funding of um, yeah of, of city regions. And what that would mean um, for, for those not <laughs> aware of the ins and outs of it is essentially that you would have a block grant um, provided from the centre to the devolved institutions um, that would give uh, give give freedom to the devolved bodies to take decisions about allocation across the various devolved services. So Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, they get a block grant, um, and then it's a matter for um, for decision makers at that level to decide how to allocate that, and it provides provides a high degree of of, of um, security of uh, level of funding because changes are then just incremental year on year 
um, and accountability is then um, at the devolved level. Um, people aren't um, tied by ring fences to to central government priorities. So I, I guess that's the that's the model you're 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 referring to. Um, I just wanted to uh, to, to, well, to actually ask the Barnett formula ask... itself, Akash. Yes. The, the, the Barnett formula itself is a little more cunning than that because it guarantees higher levels of public spending in the, the, the nations of the United Kingdom, but not the regions. So the Barnett formula, it isn't just that it's a block grant, which it is, but it ensures that public spending in the nations is higher than in England. And as Alan said, that means that the less areas with lower GVA in, the, in England um, are are defavorized because of the Barnett formula and untangling that whole web of the nations and then parity with English devolution is very, very thorny indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think to be, to be technical about it, the formula applies to changes in spending year on year and those are on a population basis so the but what is what provides Scotland in particular with higher per capita spending is the historical baseline of spending which is higher for all sorts of decisions going back uh, many decades actually and that's never been corrected for um, so yeah we don't but but what is what is and I mean Northern Ireland certainly does well on a per capita basis Wales does a lot uh, lot lot less well actually and 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 have been critics of of the Barnett formula for not reflecting need um so yes, I think that's certainly a big area where um i th- well certainly the Institute for Government hopes to look at those questions in more detail. I do want to just bring in a uh, couple of other questions before we uh before we run out of time um I mean, one actually is is a question for me that I, I guess I just wanted to ask Nicola about this. So, I mean, as I mentioned at the start of the conversation, um, the government is committed um, at some point this year to to bringing forward a white paper to delivering what they've called full devolution across England. Um, I mean, to the extent you're able to say, um, what what should we expect? Uh, or what do we think that the government is likely to put in such a document? I mean, is that going to be a grand new strategy that's going to change everything, or is it going to be a bit of a damp squib, do you think? Um, of course, I have absolutely no idea. But if I were a betting person, I would bet that some version of a regional white paper is entering sort of a draft in triple figures by now because what would you put in it and the messiness that we talked about before is is fine in terms of if you understand place-based statecraft has less to do with the state but more to do with how you craft it all together locally and that blows the minds of people that are going to write legislation so I think so. We were promised the subnational white paper in the first hundred days of the um, Boris government, um, and um, I think we're not going to see it for a while because it's very unclear what it should say. <laughs> Does it, you know, 
that not too much of a cop out <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, that's always a problem <laughs> when governments commit to uh, documents or white papers, but don't really have a sense of what to put in them. <laughs> um, that's not necessarily great policy making process. To resolve issues that we've talked about of leadership, of crisis leadership, and of cobra, of response, of resilience, of bouncing back better, or um, of what we're going to do about the fact that, you know, we could have several millions of, of furloughed to possibly unemployed uh, people as a result of coronavirus. Like there isn't any frame, there isn't a, fla- a, a sort of legislative framework, which I think would be satisfying in this period. The point is, it. I would love to see a form of co-production going forward through which economic intelligence be gathered through LEPs and through others combined authorities. Mayors have something to say. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we actually co-produce a subnational white paper? How's that for a slice of fried gold? (laughs) Um, that sounds like a that sounds like a a good model to pitch for um finally then very finally um alan and julia on that same issue um i mean if you could uh if 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 you were asked to help co-produce uh the white paper maybe you have been i mean what would be the the absolute top priority that that you would like to see um appear in it so i'll go to alan first and then uh end with with julia if that's okay so alan I think I think the general plea is is that we shouldn't get bogged down in minutiae um, in in terms of specific bespoke dealing um, between localities and and government. Um, that that was the downside of the of the previous approach. So whatever we move forward with needs to be much more comprehensive. It it needs to be much more like a place based settlement for for particular areas, but. As part of that package, what, what Greater Manchester would argue for is exactly the same as we've been arguing for in, in, for the last decade um, through the deals process and in any other way we can. And it's, it's a whole package of stuff. Uh, we've go from infrastructure through research and development, through skills and work, um, and incorporates elements of public service reform, um, which have, have been notable um, exceptions from from the deals-based process which we've had so far. Um, but basically, it enables localities to, to, to make the joining up um, work locally rather than try and fit together particular deals which are acceptable um, at a particular moment in time within Westminster and Whitehall and try and make them match um, at the locality having done those deals. Um, it, needs, it needs to be a broader base and more comprehensive approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, Julia, final word to you. What would you like yeah. to see in the white I'd, paper? I'd almost turn it the other way around. The major risk that I want to, I'd like to see avoided, is exactly what Alan talked about. In time, like everything reduced down to a lowest common denominator and a and a checkbox approach. What I'd like to see is something broad and enabling that and in, that will support kind of a mature and um, an evolving relationship with central government. Um, you know, my, what I would like. To see, like my my worry is, my fear is that we'll 
you know, we've seen this white paper and the discussions around the framework and the financial settlement around it, you know, and the spending review that may come being kicked down, the, you know, the can, that can has been kicked down the road a number of times already. So really, it, for me, it's how do we bring forward the substantive parts of the conversation around um, where we go next with devolution, what we need into the white paper and mainstream them into our recovery conversations with government so that actually what we end up with is a white paper that's a, that's kind of enabling and actually some immense discussions and you know code creation and development that's already happened ahead of it so you know the the white paper is the end of the process rather than the start of it that's what i'd like to see mm-hmm. brilliant okay well i think that's a a great place to end the conversation um i can't ask the audience to express their appreciation in the usual way of course and <laughs> i think if i were to if I were to clap myself, I'd probably get in trouble with the audio engineers. But um, let me just say a huge thank you to the panel. So Julia Goldsworthy, Alan Harding and Nicola Hedlam. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you all. Uh, thank you to everyone who submitted questions and, of course, everyone who has tuned in to listen. Um, the Institute for Government has plenty more events coming up. Um, please check our website for details. Um, they do include a discussion next week that I'll be hosting about devolution to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, so looking at um, the UK-wide devolution questions. Um, all details, as I say, are on the website and do send in questions uh, for that and any of our other events that you are interested in. So thank you again, and I hope you can all join us again next time.